You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Would you open with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. The Gospel of John. Our text this morning comes from John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So let's begin by reading that together. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill up the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some, some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and the disciples believed in him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray that this morning as we consider this miracle that took place at this wedding, Lord, would you give us insight that we might understand how it applies uh, in general, how, what it means, but also what it means for our lives, how it applies to our lives today and from this day moving forward. Lord, we want to be your disciples, and like your disciples here in this text, Lord, we want to believe, and we ask that you'd encourage our faith, help us to see the good news of the gospel, and stir up joy in us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we're currently in the season of Advent, Advent being those four weeks leading up to Christmas. And for Advent this year, we've been doing a special series called Joy to the World. And in this series, what we've been talking about is how the gospel brings an unshakable joy into our lives that nothing and no one can ever take away from us. Today's message comes from the Gospel of John, where we see Jesus' first miracle. It was done at a wedding in a town in Galilee called Cana. And the, wed- the miracle, you might know, he turned water into wine. So now you might be wondering and thinking to yourself, what does that have to do with joy? Well, that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be considering what this miracle meant and how it applies to our lives and what it has to do with joy for us. So here's what we're going to see in this story, kind of an outline for you. First of all, here's, here's what happens in the story. Joy gives way to shame. The second thing we see is that joy is restored in an unexpected way. And thirdly, we see the joy that is to come. So joy gives way to shame, joy restored in an unexpected way, and then the joy that is to come. Let's talk about this idea that the joy gave way to shame. See, that's what happened here in this story. You can tell a lot about a culture by looking at the way they do major life events, events such as weddings and funerals and coming-of-age events. They're kind of like windows that give you a view into a culture and help you to see. They give you some insight into how those people think and what they value. And here in America, think about how we do weddings and what that says about us, right? Like, we like our weddings to be short and sweet. Like, every time I talk to a couple and we're preparing their wedding, uh, they're always, you know, they kind of beat around the bush. And I'm like, no, I get it. You want me to be short, right? And they're like, yep, we want this to be short. We want to get them in and get them out, you know, get them fed and then send them home, right? Like, we, people are busy. 
and, and we want to respect their time. So we want our weddings to be efficient. That's the, the way we do weddings in America, efficient. Weddings here in the U.S. tend to be a lot smaller than weddings in other parts of the world. I went to a small Indian wedding one time, 600 people, and that was just a small one. You know, 600 people is a large wedding for, for a lot of people in the U.S. But in other parts of the world, people tend to have larger gatherings for their weddings. Even in poorer countries, they'll, they'll have bigger festivities and larger gatherings that last longer. They will be sometimes all-day events or even multiple-day events. And so when we read here in John chapter 2 that Jesus and his disciples arrive at this wedding, and it says that they got there on the third day. Understand, that literally means they got there on the third day of the wedding. This was a multi-day event. A Jewish wedding would sometimes last for up to seven days. It was a multi-day feast for everyone in the community to come and eat and drink and dance and celebrate and rejoice because something great had happened. It was the triumph of love. Two people, disparate people, had come together. They were being unified. It was the birth of a new family. It was the celebration of love as these people came together. And so, you know, we live in a world where, where moments like that are important because we live in a world that can sometimes be very harsh. People can be cruel. We deal with things like sickness and death that take away our health, that take away the ones that we love. And in the midst of the harshness of this world, a wedding is this bright spot. It's this celebration of light and love and hope and the future. And, and one of the greatest symbols of joy even in the Bible, but in the world at large as well, one of the greatest symbols of joy and merriment is wine. In fact, the Bible, like I said, the Bible talks about it this way as well. Like Psalm 104, for example, it says, God gave the grass of the field for the cattle to eat, and he gave wine to gladden the hearts of men. In Psalm 2, the psalmist says that God has put more joy in my heart than when grain and wine abound. Right? So it's talking about joy in connection, wine in connection with joy. You know, grain, what it represents is safety and security, right? Because it meant that you have food to eat and food to feed your family. It also meant income. If you're a farmer and you have grain, you can sell that grain and make some money. But wine represents something else. Wine represents decadence in a way. It represents merriment. See, you don't need wine in order to survive in the way that you need grain in order to eat. Wine is a luxury. It represents celebration. And yet in the midst of this joy and gladness, this celebration, something really bad happens, doesn't it? They run out of wine. Now for you and me, that kind of seems like a minor thing. Like I go to weddings all the time where there is no alcohol at all. And so I look at that and I say, okay, big deal. They ran out of wine. Oh no, you right. Your party lasted two and a half days instead of seven days, like big deal. Except for them, understand this was a big deal. Because what this meant for them was shame. It meant shame in their society. See, most Middle Eastern and Asian societies are what we call shame and honor cultures. That's how their culture works. It works on the basis of shame and honor. This is why you have things like in Japan, where they have this history of literally falling on a sword, like literally killing themselves in order to avoid bringing shame to themselves or shame to their family. Literally, people would rather die than experience shame. Now, you have to understand that in order to understand what's going on here. And so Jesus' mother, Mary, she sees what's happening, that, that they've run out of wine, and the party's basically going to be over now, and this is going to bring shame upon the family. And so Jesus' mother comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, we've got a problem. I don't know who else to turn to. Maybe you can do something to help. And again, this seems to us like kind of a small thing, maybe even a little bit trivial, kind of shallow thing, like, Big deal. They ran out of wine. Just, you know, turn up the music and, and party until everybody goes home. 
But for them, right, wine was the essence of the party. It was the most important element of an ancient feast. In other words, if the wine ran out, the party's over. And this is going to bring shame upon the family, whoever this family is. We don't know exactly who they are. And Mary, having a good heart, she doesn't want this family to suffer that shame. And so she's trying to intervene and step in and help out. And she thinks that Jesus might be able to help. Because why? Well, because she knows who Jesus is. She knows exactly who Jesus is. Because before Jesus was born, we read in the Gospel of Luke, part of the Christmas story, that an angel came to Mary and spoke to her that she was going to have a child. And that child would be the long-awaited and promised king of Israel. It's part of the Christmas story. Here's what it says in Luke chapter 1. That in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to Mary. And he came to her, and this is what he said. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Do not be afraid. You have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So Mary knew who Jesus was, and now she comes to Jesus asking him to intervene and to help and to fix this problem. But there's one thing in this passage that we can't overlook. See, if you overlook this, you'll miss what's going on here. And that's this. It says in verse 11, kind of the summary of everything, the conclusion, kind of give us perspective. Here's what it says, verse 11. This was the first of the signs which Jesus did to manifest his glory. This is the first of the signs that Jesus did to manifest his glory. In other words, the key to understanding this story and what's happening here and the significance of it and what it all means you have to understand that this wasn't just a miracle. It was a sign. It was a signifier. It was a representation by which Jesus revealed his glory. It was a sign. It signified something. What did it signify? It signified, it says this was done to show Jesus' glory. So in other words, this first miracle that Jesus did, it wasn't just by random chance. It wasn't because his mom kind of twisted his arm and made him do it even though he didn't want to. No, I believe this was absolutely calculated. You see, what Jesus did here and how he did it it was done on purpose to reveal his true identity and his mission to other people. In other words, this miracle points to who Jesus is and what he came to do. I mean, think about it, really. This is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And miracles, those are the kind of things that people remember. It gets a lot of attention. People talk about it. You know, it's something that really sticks with people. And guess what? Word's going to spread. So whatever Jesus does first is going to be a very defining moment as far as how people think about him and what people think about who he is and what he's all about. And so it's very interesting that Jesus chooses this for his first miracle. In his first miracle, he doesn't raise somebody from the dead. He doesn't heal a disease. He doesn't cast out a demon. In his very first miracle, Jesus makes more wine in order to keep a party going. He fixes a problem at a party. Now, why would Jesus use supernatural power in order to make wine? And how... In the world, does this signify who he is and what he came to do? Well, here, here's the thing I want you to see. This whole story, what it represents, the reason why this was the first miracle that Jesus did is because this event is a picture. It is a representation. It is a picture of the true story of the world and the story of each of our lives. 
This story is a picture, a representation of the story of the world and the picture of each of our lives individually as well. How so? Well, let me explain. Look at what's going on in this story. There's a really great party going on. It's a celebration of love, but the party is cut short and the joy of the party has given way to shame. See, the Bible describes that. See, that's the story of the world, isn't it? A really great thing, a celebration of love cut short and leads to shame. That's the story of all of our lives and the story of the world. When the Bible describes the creation of the world, you know how it describes it? As a celebration. There's this wonderful passage in Job chapter 38 where Job, God is speaking to Job and he describes the creation of the world. And he says that at the creation of the world, he says, the morning, star, the morning stars sang together and the angels shouted for joy. The morning star sang together and the angels shouted for joy. He's describing the creation and saying that this is what the creation was. It was a celebration of love and joy. When we look at the book of Genesis, it says that God created the world as a work of art. That's how it describes it. And he looked upon it and he said, it is good. And then as his crowning achievement, the pinnacle of his creation, he created human beings, the man and the woman, and he created them in his own image. And it says that he looked upon them and whereas everything else he created was good, he said, it is very good. And it says that he placed them in a place that was just perfectly suited for them. He provided them with everything they needed to thrive. And it says that those very first people, they knew God and they walked with God. And it says this incredible phrase in Genesis 2. They were naked and they were unashamed. They were naked and they were unashamed. This idea of walking with God, by the way, this is a recurring theme. It's a recurring phrase throughout the Bible. We see it with other people, right? It's applied to these people. We see it from the Old Testament into the New Testament, right? It says that Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day in the garden. It says that Enoch walked with God and God took him to himself. It says that Noah walked with God in the midst of a perverse generation. It says that Abraham walked with God and Isaac walked with God. What does that mean? What is this idea of walking with God? See, walking with God, it's referring to a distinct kind, a specific kind of relationship that people had with God. And that's describing what it means for us to have a relationship with God ideally. I mean, think about this. Who are the people who you go for long walks with? They're the people you have a relationship with, aren't they? They're your children, your spouse, your friends. Like when, when two people start dating, sometimes they'll go on long walks. Why? Because they want to spend time getting to know each other. That's what you do on a walk. You talk, you get to know each other, you, you invest in building this relationship. In couples who've been together for a long time, what do they do? They do the same thing, right? Hey, honey, let's go for a walk together. What they, why do they do that? Because they want to build that relationship. They want to cultivate that relationship that they have. And so this picture that the Bible is using of walking with God, it describes a certain kind of relationship that, that's what a relationship with God should look like. Walking with God. You know, as a dad, I love it when my kids hold my hand and we go for a walk. You know, if we're walking somewhere, they'll reach up and kind of grab your hand. I love that. You know what? It, part of what it means to walk with God is that picture too. It's that idea that he's our father and we're his kids and we take his hand and we walk with him. And like a child, right? Wherever dad goes, that's where I'm going. Whatever dad's doing, that's what I'm doing because my dad's a good dad and he loves me and he protects me and he takes care of me. He provides for me and he leads me where I need to go. And I do what my dad says to do because I know that he First of all, he knows more than I do, and he absolutely wants what's best for me. He has my best interest in mind. 
And that's the essence of what faith in God is. This idea of taking God's hand and walking with him. You see, walking with God is more than just believing in God. It's more than just believing that he exists. It's an action, right, isn't it? It's an action. We take his hand and we walk with him. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is this. Do I walk with God? Ask yourself that. Do you walk with God? Because that's what we were created for. To walk with God, to be in a relationship with God, to know him and to walk with him. In the beginning, Adam and Eve walked with God and they were naked and unashamed. In the beginning, there was joy, there was celebration, just like at this wedding feast here in Cana, right? Joy, celebration, fellowship, those same elements were there. But then something happened. Maybe you know the story, the first man and the first woman They sinned, they rebelled, they gave in to temptation, and they failed. And when that happened, the joy and the celebration which they had had at first gave way to something else. It gave way to shame. We read that there in Genesis chapter 3, that as soon as the man and the woman sinned, this is what it says, then their eyes were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you walking in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? See, as a result of their sin, what happened? The joy and the celebration and the fellowship that they were created for, that they enjoyed at first, it gave way to something else. It gave way to shame. And as a result of their shame, what did they do? They tried to hide from God. And they tried to hide themselves from each other because they suddenly were overcome with this feeling that they were not okay. That there was something about them that wasn't right, that wasn't acceptable, that they needed to hide You see, the story of this wedding feast in John chapter 2 is a picture of the story of the world in which we were created for joy and fellowship and celebration, but it has given way. What we had in the beginning has given way to something else. It's given way to shame. And the same story, by the way, has played out in our lives as well. In your life, it's played out in my life. The same story as well, right? We were created for fellowship and celebration and joy, but those things have given way to a sense of shame. Each and every one of us, right, we have this sense There's something wrong with us. There's something that's just not okay. That we're not fit in some way or another. And so we hide. We hide from God and we hide from each other. We don't let people see who we really are, at least not in fullness, because there is this fear that if someone were to really know everything about me, everything I've ever done, everything I've ever really thought, then they could not possibly love me. They could not possibly accept me. So what I've got to do is I've got to keep those things hidden. I've got to control what people know about me and what they see about me. I've got to put up a front. I've got to put my best face forward and present a version of myself that people might love and accept and like. You see, the story of this wedding is the story of the world. It's the story of each of our lives. Joy and celebration and fellowship that we had in the beginning that we were created for has given way to shame. But check out what happens next. Number two is our second point. Joy is restored in an unexpected way. So joy is restored in an unexpected way. In verse three, Mary, the mother of Jesus, she comes to Jesus and she says, Jesus, we have no wine. Now this isn't just a statement of a fact. This is a request for help. It's a request for intervention. She's asking for help. She realizes that there's a big problem. 
that, and there's nothing that she can do about it. And there's nothing that anyone else at this party can do about it, right? It's not like you can just go to the wine store and buy some more wine. Those wine stores didn't exist. So what are they going to do? This is a problem for which there is no solution. And so Mary comes to Jesus, and what she's basically asking for is a miracle. Come on, Jesus, I know who you are. We, we both know who you are. Come on. Now's the time. Now's the time. Just, you know, this can be your first miracle. And, uh, and asking him to do a miracle. And now look at how Jesus responds. Verse 4. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now how many of you read that and you're like, well that seems a bit harsh, right? Like a bit cold. Like why is Jesus talking to his mom like that? Like if I talked to my wife like that, like I wouldn't wake up in the morning, right? Like uh, it seems a bit cold and a bit at least distant, well, you're right, actually, right? People who know these languages, commentators, they say, no, this is, it's a formal way of referring to someone, but it's certainly, it's polite, but it's distant, right? It's not saying, sure, mom, I'll do whatever you say at all. He's saying, he, he's distancing herself from her. He's being cold. There's, in other words, there's something weighing heavily on him. His mind is somewhere else. And Jesus tells her exactly what his mind is on, right? He says, my hour has not yet come. What does that mean? What hour is he talking about? If you read through the Gospel of John, you'll notice something. That Jesus uses this phrase seven times, over and over, seven times in the Gospel of John. My hour. My hour is coming. My hour hasn't come yet. My hour, my hour, my hour. What is the hour? In each of those instances, his hour refers to the hour of his death. The time when he will die on the cross for the sins of the world. And so... That's kind of a weird response, right? Like we should, we should realize that as we read this, that this is not like a normal response. In other words, this is a weird thing to say. So in other words, think about it. Mary comes to him and says, Jesus, we've got a problem. We ran out of wine. And Jesus is like, why are you telling me this? It's not time for me to die yet. You're like what? What are you talking about dying? We were just talking about wine, man. Right? It's a strange response. How does Jesus make this jump from mom asking for wine to him talking about his death? which is in the future. Well, remember what we read in verse 11, that this miracle was a sign. It was a signifier, a representation, a symbol of what Jesus had come to do. Jesus had come to intervene, to restore back to us the joy and the celebration and the fellowship that we were created for, but we lost. He came to remove the shame and restore the joy. And what he's essentially saying to his mother is, yes, I can do that. That's why I came. I came to bring joy to the world, to take away guilt and to remove shame. But in order for me to do that, I'm going to have to die. And it's not time for me to do that yet. My hour has not yet come. And look at how Mary responds. She, she tells the servants, do whatever Jesus tells you. Now, let me just say, that's pretty good advice, right? Like, I think we should all take Mary's advice. Did you also know this is the last words. These are the last words that we hear from Mary, spoken by Mary in the rest of the Bible, right? These are the last words. Do whatever Jesus tells you to do. So let those last words of Mary stick with you this Christmas season. Do whatever Jesus tells you to do. Now check out what Jesus tells them to do. This is also pretty weird. Verse 6, he says, it says there were six stone jars which were for the Jewish rites of purification. And Jesus says, hey, guys, see those water jars over there that are used for purification rituals, right? These Jewish religious ceremonies of ceremonial cleansing. Go get those jars and fill them up with water. Now this right here, 
is the point that many people kind of gloss over and just keep reading, and it doesn't, doesn't stick out in their mind. But see, here's the thing. If you don't understand this, you don't understand what's happening here. This is the whole key to understanding. This is the whole key to this whole thing making sense. Jesus says, go get those water jars, you know, the ones that are used for ceremonial cleansing, for ritual purification. And I want you to put water in those jars, and then Jesus turns that water into wine to get the party going again. Here's what you need to see in this story. You need to ask yourself the question, why those jars? That's not normal to do that in those jars. Why those jars? What's the meaning? What's the significance? What's the purpose of those jars? I mean, think about it. The party's been going on for two and a half days so far. Or three days now, right? The people have drank a lot of wine. So what does that leave you with? A bunch of empty wine containers that are made for the very purpose of serving wine at a wedding, which is where they are. So they need wine. They're at a wedding. There are a bunch of empty wine containers that are made for serving wine at weddings. Why wouldn't Jesus just use those? That would be kind of the normal thing to do if you were going to make some more wine. It would not be normal for you to take jars that are used for ritual ceremonial purification rites and put wine in them. That is strange. It'd be kind of like this. Imagine we're having a church potluck, right? Like we did our Christmas uh, dinner last week. And, you know, we have all these five-gallon drink dispensers, right? And we put iced tea in them. And we, we, or, or, you know, we have coffee out front. We've got these big containers. Now, let's say someone comes to us and they say, Pastor Nick, big problem. We ran out of drinks. We ran out of iced tea. We ran out of coffee. And I say, no problem. I've got it covered. I'll make some more. And you're like, okay, well, I'll just rinse out these igloo coolers. And I'm like, nope, I'm going to use the baptismal, right? Like I just get out the baptismal. I start making iced tea. Or I just start brewing some coffee in that thing. It's like, uh, you know, traditional Catholic churches where they'll have like the holder for the, for the holy water, right? The font for the holy water. And I'm just making coffee in it. And you're like, well, that was kind of strange because we have an actual coffee pot. You could have just made the coffee in there. See, Jesus is doing what? He's restoring joy to the party in an unexpected way, in a strange way. And kudos, by the way, to these servants who do what Jesus tells them to do, even though it must have seemed quite strange and quite um, different to them. Like, why is he telling us to do this? I don't know, but his mom told us to do whatever he said, so we're going to do it. Now, I think that sometimes in our lives, we have this attitude like, yeah, I'll do whatever Jesus tells me to do as long as it makes sense to me too. Like as long as I, I think that seems like a good idea too, then I'll do it. But I want you to see this. That, that's really the test of whether or not he is your Lord, right? We use this phrase, the Lord Jesus. This is the test. What about when he tells you to, some, to do something that you don't feel like doing, that seems odd to you, strange, something that if it was up to you, you would not do it that way. That is the test of whether or not he is your Lord. But look at these guys. They do what Jesus asks them to do, even though it doesn't make sense to them, even though they don't totally understand what he's telling them to do. They put this water in these jars used for ceremonial cleansing, and it turns to wine. They take it to the master of the ceremony. He drinks it, and he says, wow, this is excellent wine. This is even better than the wine we had before. Now just kind of store that thought away. Remember that. We're going to talk about that again in a minute, right at the end. This is better than the wine that we had before. So what does Jesus do? Remember, verse 11. Why does Jesus do this? This is a sign, a signifier, a representation. It points to his glory, his true identity, and his true mission. These jars were used for ritual cleansing. You see, the Jewish people had this very basic fundamental understanding that as human beings— there are things about us that are unclean. 
Because, right, we're sinners. We've fallen short. We are flawed people. All of us are. And they understood that this, it's not just that we're flawed and unclean. It's that that's a really big problem because we're dealing with a God who is pure and holy and perfect. And we are not by nature. We're fallen and flawed. And so they understood that in order for them to come into the presence of God, they needed to wash and become clean. The problem was, and the problem still is this. And if I tell you, you're unclean, you say, no problem. I'm going to go wash my hands with soap and water. I'm going to go take a shower. That only cleans the outside of your body, doesn't it? What about the things on the inside? How do you cleanse your heart? How do you cleanse your mind from the things that you've seen, from the things that have been done to you, the things that you've experienced or done yourself? How do you cleanse those things in your heart and your mind that can't be washed away with soap and water? See, that's the dilemma, and that's what they need. They understand that, this fundamental understanding. We need to be cleansed on the inside. And so look at what Jesus does. He takes these jars used for ritual cleansing, and he makes wine in them, and the people drink deep of this new and better wine, which comes from these jars, which are meant for purification. And what this symbolizes is something very clear and something very profound. Don't miss this. Jesus came to cleanse us on the inside and to restore our joy, to cleanse us on the inside, and to restore our joy. See, the wedding feast was saved, joy was restored, shame was removed. Three years after this event, Jesus would take another cup with these same disciples at another feast. He would take this cup, and at that time he would say, my hour has come. And he took that cup, and he handed it to his disciples, and he said, take and drink. This is my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. See, wine, the symbol of joy, is also a symbol of something else in the Bible. It's a symbol of Jesus' blood, which was shed for us. That's why we do this every Sunday. We take the Lord's Supper together. In order for us to be cleansed on the inside, which is what we need, in order for us to have the joy that comes from being brought back into relationship with God and fellowship with God, Jesus' blood had to be shed. And what do we do with it? We receive it. We drink deep of it because we embrace what he did for us to cleanse us and to restore us back to the joy of fellowship, the joy of celebration with God that we were created for. This is the good news of the gospel. This is why Jesus came. This event was a symbol. It was a sign, a signifier that pointed to Jesus' true identity, who he was and what he came to do. And there's one more thing that we have to talk about before we're done. And that's this. This also pointed to the joy which is to come. See, if you're a single person, right, a single man like Jesus was, or a single woman, uh, especially uh, in your 20s or 30s, and you go to a wedding, what are you thinking about? Maybe you remember doing that yourself, you know, or maybe you're at that age right now. You go to a wedding, what are you thinking about? You're thinking about your own wedding. You're wondering, I wonder if this will ever happen for me. I wonder if that'll ever be me up there getting married. I wonder what that day will be like, the day of my wedding. And you have to know that Jesus, sitting here at this wedding feast, as he's looking around at what's going on, he's looking at the bride, he's looking at the groom, he's looking at the people, drinking this wine out of these jars for cleansing, seeing the bride and the groom, and what is he thinking about? He's not just thinking about the hour of his death. He's looking beyond the hour of his death, and he's thinking about his own wedding. See, that's the reason he came. He didn't just come to die. You know that, right? That was the means to an end, but the end itself is something much greater, much more glorious. The purpose of his death was a wedding. 
Jesus didn't just come to die. He came to bring back a wedding feast. Not just, he didn't just die for the sake of dying. It wasn't just a, a heroic martyrdom. No, he died in order to cleanse us, to restore us to fellowship with God so that one day we could experience the true wedding feast, his wedding. The prophet Isaiah talks about this in Isaiah 25. Listen to this and think about this in light of what we've just been talking about in John chapter two in Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord God Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from the earth. The Lord has spoken. You see, that same wedding feast is actually talked about again in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, where it tells us that at the end of all things, those who have been cleansed by and received Jesus' sacrifice, it says we will be brought into a great wedding feast that will never end. Check it out, Revelation chapter 21, this great vision that John the Apostle had of how it's all gonna end up in the end, right? He says, then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, prepared how? Like a bride adorned for her husband. And he says there, the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to what? To the marriage supper of the lamb. So that's how the Bible describes heaven. And here's what's really cool. If you look at the end of the book of Revelation and you compare it with the beginning of the book of Genesis, did you know that there's a whole bunch of similarities and it's actually meant to be that way. In other words, it's this ark, right? We, we lost this great thing in paradise and we went through this long story and it's restored in the end. And so a lot of the imagery in Revelation, the end of Revelation, is the same as the imagery in Genesis chapter one, two, three. And, and here's what's really cool though. There's all these similarities, right? Like the, the people are together with God. There's no sin. There's no shame. Everything's the way it should be. There's perfect harmony. And in both instances, we read about this tree, the tree of life, except there's one difference. You know what that is? That the, the scene in Revelation is actually better than the scene in Genesis. And here's what that means for us. It means that what Jesus did for us, he didn't just fix the problem and restore us back to the joy and celebration and fellowship that we originally had. No, he actually did even better. He actually brings us something better. See, what, that's what we see in this story as well. Jesus didn't just recreate the wine that they had before. He made something better. The joy that is to come is better than the joy that we lost. The joy, the celebration, the fellowship that we will experience with him forever is better than anything that we had before or anything that we can even imagine. The joy which is to come for all those who have put their faith in Jesus and what he did for you, his blood shed for you on the cross in order to make you clean so you could be restored to joy and celebration and fellowship with God, that which you were created for. In conclusion, let me just wrap it up by saying this. This first miracle of Jesus it came about to do what? To remove shame and to restore joy. He did it through his sacrifice, which cleanses us and restores us to fellowship with God. And one writer put it this way. I'll leave you with this phrase. Jesus sat amidst the joy of the wedding feast, sipping the cup of his coming sorrow so that all those who believe in him can sit amongst the sorrow of the world, sipping the cup of coming joy. My prayer for you today is that no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're experiencing right now, 
that you would truly drink deep of that cup of the coming joy, knowing what, that what Jesus did for you and that what awaits you as a result if you have put your faith in him. Drink from that cup today. Lord, we thank you for this hope of coming joy that we have in you. Lord, thank you that the hope that we have in you is a sure hope. We can rest fully assured, Lord, that you will do what you have promised to do. And so, Lord, we, we remember this wedding feast and we think about all that it means, all that it tells us about you, and we look forward to the joy which is to come. Lord, may we experience that joy here and now, the joy that comes from hope, but Lord, may we also look forward to patiently and with endurance the joy which is to come. Give us that joy, we pray today as we leave this place. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.